Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This week is Parshas B'Shalach, and we are going to begin learning the halachas of cooking on Shabbos, which will take us probably a couple of weeks to go through in its entirety. The, well, in order to work through this in a clear, as clear a manner as possible, we'll begin with what's permitted Erev Shabbos and what's not, and then we'll move on to what's permitted to do with food that's already cooked on Shabbos, taking it, returning it to a hot plate or fire or crock pot, and then we'll learn about actual bishul on Shabbos, cooking on Shabbos, how it applies to making coffee, making tea, adding spices to food, and all other applications. <clears throat> so, starting with Erev Shabbos. When it comes to Erev Shabbos, Chazal limited two things. One, they limited leaving food on the fire after Shkia, which isn't fully cooked. Why did they say you can't do that? Because since the food is not fully cooked, you might come to adjust the flame, make it higher or lower, in order to finish the food, to finish the cooking process. In those days, it, it was stoking it with a, you know, a, a poker, stoking the fire, and nowadays it would be raising or adjusting the flame. The is, this iser is known as shahia, which literally means leaving something, and in this case means leaving something on the flame. So the first Isra that applies there of Shabbos is Shehiyah, leaving food that's not fully cooked on an open flame or whatever open heat source on Shabbos. Two, they limited wrapping food up in something which produces heat. This is known as Hatmana, which literally means hiding something. In a heat-producing material, so it's known as Hatmana B'davar HaMoyset Havel, you can't wrap something in in a material which produces heat, or you, by the same token, as we'll learn, you can't wrap something up in a material and then put it next to a heat source. Same kind of idea. So both these isurim have conditions, meaning that there are certain ways you can leave uncooked on the fire permissibly, and there are ways that you can wrap food up permissibly. So this week we're going to deal with shahia, mostly uh, leaving food on the fire, and next week hopefully we'll talk about hatmana when you can wrap food up and what's called wrapping, what's not, and so on and so forth. So beginning with Shahiyah, leaving food on the fire. This is something we all do one way or another. You definitely need to do this if you want to eat chalant. And there are basically three methods of doing this. One, leaving it on an open flame, on your range, on your cooktop. Number two would be cooking it in a crock pot. And number three would be leaving it on a hot plate. And we'll discuss each one of these separately and how each one plays into halacha. It's important to establish first that it's an important mitzvah to eat hot food on Shabbos. It's an integral part of eating Shabbos, and what's more, Chazal deemed it very important because there was a sect of Jews who unfortunately denied the truth of Teresh Shabbat, which to the most part caused them to stop observance of many mitzvahs, but in this particular case, they translated a pasik to mean that it's usher to have a fire burning in one's house on Shabbos, so they didn't eat hot food on Shabbos. That was just one of their, like, badges, you know, that they, they didn't eat hot food on Shabbos. And therefore, Chazal specifically wanted everyone to eat something hot on Shabbos to demonstrate our belief in Teresh So it's a very important mitzvah to eat hot food on Shabbos. 
Now, being that the core problem here is that we are worried that someone will adjust a flame in order to hasten the cooking process, Chazal allowed us to leave food on the fire in one of three ways. So one, the simplest, obviously, is if the food is fully cooked. If the food is fully cooked, we won't have any reason to adjust the flame. But the question is, what qualifies as fully cooked? So this is something which is debated in the Gemara and in Halacha, it's between the Beis Yosef and the Ramah, and even though generally the rule is that Sparadim follow the Beis Yosef and Ashkenazim follow the Ramah, this is one scenario where both Sepharadim and Ashkenazim follow the Ramah's lenient psak uh, for the reason that Einik Shabbos is a big deal. What is the Ramah's lenient psak? The Ramah paskins that once the food is half-cooked, it's deemed edible enough that we aren't worried that someone will adjust the flame. So what exactly does half-cooked mean? So it can be calculated by the average time something takes to become fully cooked. And if half that time has passed, it's edible enough for this halacha. So for example, let's say for argument's sake, chicken in the oven takes on 350, takes one hour to bake thoroughly until you would consider it fully cooked. So if it takes one hour, so after a half hour, it's edible enough to allow shahiyah according to the Ramah and according to Halacha. Now, even though after a half hour, we might not be comfortable eating it at that point and maybe not consider it so safe, there are people out there who would eat it after a half hour of cooking, and that's enough for Chazal. This level of cooking, half-cooked, is known as Ma'acha ben Drusoi, the food of a bandit who is known as ben Drusoi. Seems like this fellow was a, a renowned bandit. And uh, he didn't have a lot of time to cook his food. He was on the run. So... He would cook it halfway and eat it, so it was deemed edible after a half hour of cooking. Now, although halachically it's permitted to leave food on even an open flame or in the oven, once it reaches this level of half-cooked, lechatchilo one should still try to apply the next heter on this list, namely grufo, which means don't rely on this heter of Michael ben Rusoy being half-cooked alone. You should also try to do a grufa, which is what we're about to discuss. So the next hatter is grufa, which is to cover the flame. Grufa means literally, in the case of coals, to uh, scoop out the coals. And in, in our situation, we call it uh, covering the flame, or perhaps that's ketuma, exactly how we define it. But in this, in practical sense, on a stovetop, it's very easy. That's where you use a blach. You take a piece of um, metal, aluminum, and you cover the open flame, and once a blech is in place, the fire is considered untouchable, so to speak, and Chazal weren't worried anymore that you will adjust the flame because you have this very large reminder reminding you not to touch it. Once a blech is in place, even if the food is less than half cooked, it may be left on the fire. And as we said before, even if the food is more than half cooked, one should always try to have a blech. Now, this is very easy when it comes to a cooktop, a stovetop, and a range, you can have a blech there, but in an oven, how are you going to make a blech for an oven? You would have to basically design a box, a metal box for the food to go into. So that's why in an oven, we generally aren't machmir to have a blech, but you do have to have the food more than half cooked and preferably fully cooked in order to be able to leave it in the oven, but once that's the situation, you are allowed to leave it in the oven and we're not machmer on a block because it's so difficult to make one. 
In a craft pot, it is possible to construct a black out of silver foil, and you would line it with the inside of the craft pot with silver foil. And this way, again, you would be, that would be the best way to do it. And also, even if you're, you're worried that your challenge is not cooked enough, you have, if you have a black, you're in good hands. And having a black on your crock pot has an added advantage that it allows you to take challenge Friday night and return it to a crock pot, but that we'll discuss next week in Yitzhak On a hot plate as well, it's also possible to make a black out of silver foil, but a hot plate we'll discuss also next week perhaps doesn't even need a black depending on the design of hot plate. So crock pot and hot plate we'll talk about next week. But this week, as far as a stove tap, usually chatechila should make a black, and if you do, it can even be less than half cooked. And in an oven, it's really not practical to make a black, so as long as your food is more than half cooked, you can leave it in the oven. The last heter is if you put a piece of raw meat into the chalant right before candle lighting. The rationale, rationale here is that the meat won't get cooked until well after the Friday night meal, and by the morning, it will be ready regardless. So being that you kind of now made this challenge not relevant for the Friday night meal, so we're not worried that you're going to try to hasten the cooking process, and you won't come to adjust the flame, and by the morning, it'll be done regardless, so there's no need for you to play around with the flame. So the third hatter is putting in a raw piece of meat right before candle lighting. So again, the three atarium here, number one, is if the food is more than half cooked, which can be measured by the time, amount of time it takes to cook it. The second heter is covering the flame, which in the case of a cook, uh, a, a stovetop is a blach or, or silver foil in the case of a crock pot. And lastly, the last heter is if you put a piece of raw meat into the chalant right before candle lighting, then even though it's less than half cooked, you can leave it there because you won't come to change the, 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 the hasten the cooking process because it won't be ready for the Friday night meal regardless. In this week's parsha, after Kali Yisrael leaves Mitzrayim, they cross the Yamsuf and they say as Yosher, they begin to travel through the Midbar. First, Hashem provides them with water, and then He provides them with food, the man. The man was a miraculous food which fell from Shemaim, from heaven, exactly the same amount for each person in the family. Omer Lagulgoilas, and Omer, which happens to be the same measurement, which is we use to uh, measure how to obligate something in challah. Per head, that's how much man fell per head. No matter how much a person picked, he came home, it always was the exact same amount, aimer, per person. How did the man fall? So the Pasuk says there was presentation. It didn't just fall randomly. First the dew fell, then the man fell on top of the first layer of dew, like perfect white crystal balls, and then it was covered by another layer of dew. It was packaged beautifully, so to speak. It was presented. And then everyone had to go out and collect the man. And here Chazal say an interesting thing. Not everyone found their man in the same place. Tzadikim found their man at their doorstep. The Bainanim, the middle people, they had to go to the edge of the encampment to find it. And the Rishayim had to take quite a hike until they discovered their man. Turns out the man had this powerful ability to pro- point out a person's failings. If a person slipped up at night and did some averse, it became very evident in the morning when he suddenly he had to start a long trek to get his man. Imagine how embarrassing that probably was. But I saw a wonderful question in Sefer 
Divrei Yisrael, the Majid Tzarebbe. And after, he, after I heard this question, I was like, wow, why didn't I ever think of that? He asks, did the Mun have your name written on it? What stopped the Rishayim from going to their neighbor, the Tzadik's doorstep, and taking his Mun? And even if they couldn't take it from someone's doorstep, maybe that was like beyond the pale, but when they got to the edge of the encampment, why would they not take the Benini's Mun? Wherever Mun was there on the edge of the encampment, that clearly wasn't designated for one person more than the next. Why didn't they just take it there? Why did they go and trek all the way out into the, into the Midbar to find their Mun when they had Mun lying there available? They just make sure to get up early and run out there as fast as possible and pick up the first Mun they see. Why would they leave it and trek out to the far one? So he gives two answers to this question, and both are a beautiful lesson in Amuna and Bitachan. The first answer, he says, is they perhaps would have wanted to, but they simply couldn't. They couldn't take it. Why not? He says, because the rule is, a person can't touch whatever was prepared for someone else, which means the Chazal say that if a person is, one person is earning money, and we observe them and we say, wow, I could have done that. Or oh, he's taking away my customers or he's taking my money, taking away my investment, copying my thing, etc. Chazal say there is absolutely no such thing. You can't possibly touch what's intended for someone else. And if a person is making money, it was designated for him and it was not designated for you. Now, whatever money you make is designated for you and not designated for anybody else. You can't take it even if you try. And that's what was demonstrated here by the man. The man that fell for a tzaddik, if a rush would try to take it, it simply wouldn't come. He wouldn't be successful in taking it. Probably the same thing that happened when a person collected too much money, it just disappeared. And he ended up with the exact correct amount. If you took the wrong man, you probably got home and had nothing in your back. You can't touch anything which is meant for someone else. That was the first lesson in Amunah. Then he gives another answer. He says, and this is really a beautiful idea, he says the man, it was covered by towel, it was covered by dew. He says you only saw it if you were meant to see it. He says that tzaddikim, they stepped outside and they saw it at their doorstep. The benanim, they started walking around and they didn't find one until they got to the edge of the encampment and the Rishayim had to hike and hike and hike before they found the mud. And he says there's a very, very deep message here. He says, you know why the tzaddikim found the mud on their doorstep? He says it's not the point that they were tzaddikim so it was made easy for them. He says, no, the opposite is true. He says they found the mud on their doorstep because that's where they looked for it. They didn't need to go and trek out far to find the man. They didn't need to go and knock themselves out to be able to find man because they believed that Hashem would provide it for them with the minimal amount of effort necessary. So they stepped outside and sure enough, their trust in Hashem paid off. The man was right there. The Benanim were a little bit doubtful of what Hashem would do and they were ready to put in their full effort to get that man. So they want to put in the effort then they had to put in that effort. and They had to start traveling out there, commuting to get to the month. And lastly, the Rishayim who had very, very little trust in Hashem and weren't convinced of this whole month thing to begin with. They had to hike and hike and hike. And then finally, at the end of the day, they worked a full eight-hour day. Then they found their month at the end of the day. He says, this is the message of every person's parnasa. Every person's parnasa, he says, can be right at your doorstep or it can be 
at the end of a full day, it could take two-hour commute or three-hour commute. It all depends on a person's level of amuna, on a person's level of, of bitachan. If a person is on a higher level of amuna, if a person is, a, has, is able to attain and acquire a higher level of bitachan, he simply doesn't need to work his heart. His ishtadlus is very minimum. He just needs to step outside and there it is. The man is right there. If a person chooses, if a person is not on the level, hasn't reached that level of amun and bitachin to trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu fully, and he kind of thinks that he needs to put in his his uh, efforts in order to be able to acquire man, then that's exactly what will happen. We're going to work and work until the point where we say, okay, I've done my establish, just then, sure enough, we'll find a man. And to those people that have very little belief in what Hashem provides, they're going to have to do till the nth degree, knock themselves out to be able to get that dime. And they'll have to travel all the way out there. And only once they did, they expended their full effort, once they knocked themselves out, will they find the man. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful chat. <clears throat> I saw a story that Rav Chaim Marcus <clears throat> was once driving Rav Matisio Solomon, the Meshgiach of Lakewood. And Aratio said, I want to tell you a story about the segula of saying Parshas Haman on Tuesday of Parshas B'Shaq. This is an interesting segula from the, I believe, which Rebbe was it? The, I forgot which Rebbe it was. One of the early Rebbes. He said that this is a segula to say the Parshas Haman, which means to say that chapter in, in Parshas B'Shaq, to read it, Shnai Mikra Vechatargum, read it on Tuesday this past Tuesday, it's a school of Parnassah. So one year, Rav had attended a Mincha Minyan in an office in Manhattan, where I imagine he probably was giving a shir. And it happened to be Tuesday of Parshas, of Parshas B'Shalach, where it was a segula to say Parshas Amman. So he sees an older man walk in. He leans over to a much younger man, and he says, are you saying Parshas Amman? I've said it for 40 years, and it's garnished to health, and it hasn't helped me at all. So Rav hears this. And he goes over to the older man and he says, excuse me, excuse, excuse me, I, I'm sorry, I don't usually butt into other people's conversations, but I couldn't help but overhear that you told the man about saying Parshas Haman. Let me ask you, in those 40 years that you've been saying Parshas Haman, how many times did you go to bed hungry at night? How many times in those 40 years did your children not have food to eat before they left for yeshiva in the morning? So the man looks at Rav Solomon and he says, never. So Ramatasio's response, so then you're telling me you always had food on your table. What a chutzpah to say, garnish gehalf, and it didn't help me to say, Parshas Haman. What was the man in the midbar that you had food for that day? So you said Parshas Haman having in mind mega millions and Powerball and you didn't win the lottery? That's not what the man was about. It was about teaching Amuna and Bitochen, recognizing that Hashem provides for all our needs. Beautiful, beautiful point. Parshas Haman, who made it fell and it gave you what you needed. You might have thought you needed more. You could have knocked yourself out to collect basketfuls and basketfuls and basketfuls of it. You came back home and it was exactly what you needed. And that was the message that Akadosh Baruch Hu was transmitting to Klal Yisrael. As much effort as a person wants to put in his parnasa, he can put. But it all boiled down to the same thing. Akadosh Baruch Hu will give every person what they need. He'll put the food on their table. And as much a status as a person might do, as only as, as much a status as he thinks he has to do, and a Kajabach will provide for him regardless. Have a good night and a wonderful Shabbos.